0: Grab your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Lamentations chapter 3. Some of you might need to look in your table of contents to find out where Lamentations is. It's right after the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, Old Testament uh, book of Jeremiah, then following that is Lamentations chapter number 3. We're going to be here for uh, the next three weeks. Uh, I want to encourage you to be here next Sunday for sure. Bring a friend with you because next Sunday... Super important message. What does the Bible say about suicide and depression? Uh, I think it's something that we should talk about. Uh, so many times people uh, struggle with depression and they think, well, I'm a terrible Christian or I can't tell my pastor or I can't tell my, my small group that I'm struggling with depression. And that just isn't so. So. Uh, And sometimes Christians go through things they don't know how to process through. So next Sunday, uh, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about that. I'm going to give you some resources that will help you. And you might say, well, I'm not really struggling. Good. Then take really good notes and share with someone who is, because I promise you, uh, someone that you know is struggling with this. Uh, I read an article, I'll share a little bit more next week, but uh, throughout the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic over the last couple of years, they say that uh, depression has risen threefold, threefold. That, that was really high. And one in four children show signs of clinical depression. That shocked me. Uh, because on a Sunday morning, you know, we'll have 60 or so kids over here in Superchurch. If that, if that statistic is even remotely close, that means 20 to 25 ch- children over there next door to us are struggling with depression, clinical depression, that concerns me, and it should concern you as well. And so we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about that, how we can help people through that, and what are some good Christian resources we can do to help that. Uh, Now, again, I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, If you want to talk to a medical doctor, talk to somebody else. I'm not a licensed counselor or therapist. I'm just a pastor, and I'm going to point you to biblical truth next Sunday that I know for a fact as a Christian will help you. And so I want to encourage you, be here for that next week, because we can't talk about hope and talk about people who have no hope. And so uh, we're going to do that next week. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Lamentations chapter number three, just to give you a little bit of context. Uh, last week, we were taking a look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was warning the children of Israel, guys, get your acts together. Stop living in rebellion. Stop living in idolatry. Stop living in sin. Or if you don't, God will take everything from us. We'll have to leave Jerusalem. We'll become slaves and we'll lose everything that we have if you don't turn back to God. Now, interesting thing about Jeremiah, Jeremiah knew that they weren't going to repent because God had already told them. uh, Hey, you're going to go and cry, but nobody's going to listen to you. Uh, And now, the children of Israel have been taken into captivity. They have lost everything. They've been taken from Jerusalem now to Babylon and are now slaves. And Jeremiah is beside himself in deep sadness. And he writes a book called... Lamentations, And so the book of Lamentations is a follow-on to Jeremiah, where where the children of Israel did not listen to Jeremiah. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And then they find themselves in the circumstances that they find themselves in. And so we're going to start in Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to start in verse number 1 and read through verse number, um, let's see, 26 uh, here today. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. Now, sorry, one more caveat. As Jeremiah writes this, He's not writing in first person like this is his life. He's writing in perspective of a a personified Israel. So as he writes through here about how they've turned their back on God and God's been really bad to them and God's done all this awful things to them, he's not writing from that from a personal perspective. He's saying, this happened to my people Israel now has been forsaken by God. He's not talking about himself personally. So as we read through this, you'd say, "I think I thought Jeremiah was a good dude. Why is all this happening to him?" It's not Jeremiah that he's weeping for in this case. He's weeping for the children of Israel and lamenting on their behalf. Uh, Lamentation chapter three, verse number one: "I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned." He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with his hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. Now, stop for just a second. Jeremiah is talking about God. God has done all these things to what? His children? His chosen people? If this is what it means to be the, the favored people of God, like, how does God treat his enemies? It's very important to understand the context of this. Israel has already been warned for decades that this was coming, yet they refused to repent. They, Jeremiah has been out waving the red flag, and they just continue to pass on by. Uh, Jeremiah was even made fun of, mocked. He, in one place in Jeremiah, he said that he was placed in the stocks, like where you stick your head and your arms through in front of the temple so that everybody who came to the temple could see this prophet who's prophesying against Israel? They have, at every opportunity, continued to harden their neck against God, continued to sin against God, and continued to live a life of idolatry against God. And God says, you don't want to do this. And they said, leave us be, we're going to do our own thing. And now, this is where they find themselves, in a very, very difficult predicament. Verse number 11, he hath turned aside my ways. He's pulled me into pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bit his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He made me drunken with wormwood. He's also broken my teeth with gravel stones, he hath covered me with ashes, now hast removed my soul far off from peace, I forgot prosperity, I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. So you get to the place where Jeremiah says, we've lost all hope. Like we remember how good God used to be, but we've like forgotten that. Like we don't even remember what it was like to have prosperity. We don't even remember the good times. That's how bad things are. And you want to find a group of people who is at a place where there's literally no hope whatsoever. This is the children of Israel. You talk about some people who have gone through the ringer now because uh, they planted this and this is what they have reaped, but they find themselves in a very, very awful circumstance of very heavy oppression, very uh, heavy suffering at the hands of the Babylonians. Many people will die in captivity here in Babylon and will never see Jerusalem ever again. During the Babylonian captivity, the walls of Jerusalem will be broken down. The temple will be ransacked and run over and destroyed while they wait in captivity. You talk about some people who are going through a rough spot. The children of Israel were it. But then everything takes a change in verse number 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. I remember when Hui Cala was, was very new and uh this was the first t- time I ever had the opportunity to be a senior pastor. Um, our family uh, started Cala from scratch. In October 2013, we had a handful of families that helped us uh, get things rolling from the very beginning. But um, I remember our very first Sunday, we had our grand opening uh, ceremony uh, service that we had. In October 2013, we had 86 people in attendance, and it was awesome. We had a great day. Everybody that came got a lay, and we had donuts, and we had coffee, and people hanging out afterwards and talking, and we had six people accept Christ as Savior that day, and it was awesome. We had an evening service that night, and probably, I don't know, half of those people came back on the. In the evening service, I thought, man, we got this thing rolling. 86 people the first Sunday, second Sunday, probably 60 or so people, and then uh, the third Sunday, probably 40 or so people, (laughs) and then it kind of shook out at about 30 to 35-ish on a good Sunday. Man, we were just plugging along, one day after another, or one week after another, and After the service is over, on the back table, there was an usher count sheet where we'd actually see how many kids were in the nursery and how many people we had in the main auditorium. And uh, then our ushers had a separate count sheet where they counted the offering. And so I'd go back and look at the offering. And so then it kind of became a thing where people would call on Sunday afternoon that that I knew and other pastors would say, hey, how are things going with you guys? How was your Sunday? You know, are things going well? Do you have have first-time guests there? Things like that. People begin to ask questions. And so... Then I began to, after the last person left on Sunday, I would go back to the back table and I would look and see those numbers. And if they were going up, I thought, man, we're doing good. If they were going down, I thought, oh, man, we're doing bad. I'd take a look at the offering and I would see, hey, we got enough money to pay our bills this week. I think we're going to make it another Sunday. And I'd go back and look at the offering and be like, man, we had like $20 come in. We're not going to make it this week. And my Sunday afternoon attitude would fluctuate based on two things the number on that sheet of paper in the back, and the number of the offering that was received that day. And I found myself, if numbers were up, it was a good day. If numbers were down, it was a bad day. But I never took into account that it's more than that. I never took into account that there was something more at work than just those numbers on a sheet of paper. We were seeing people come back to church and coming back to their faith after decades of being away from God. And, and no lie, probably once a month someone will come here and says, I haven't been to church in 10 years. I haven't been to church in 20 years. I've seen grown men in their 50s come before and say, I've never stepped foot in a church of any kind in my life. This is my first time ever coming to church. And and those of us that have been around church our whole life need to remember that. There are some people walking through the front door today that are carrying a heavy burden that they don't know if they can find hope here or not. And the answer is, yes, you can. But here's the thing, for me, Good day or bad day was based on my circumstances. What I saw on a sheet of paper, you know, might look and go, wow, that's a total lack of faith. And it was. You know, i say that was super short-sighted. And it was. But don't you and I do the same thing sometimes? We take a look at our life and we make a determination whether or not God's been good or not. We take a look at our bank account. And we try to figure out, am I making it in life or am I not? I begin to look at what other people in my own age have and I begin to say, hey, am I successful or not? I begin to look at other people's kids and go, wow, their kids are farther ahead in lives than my kids are. Did I do something wrong? Am I a terrible parent? And we begin to look at our circumstances and judge success or failure. We begin to look at our circumstances and we determine hope or hopelessness. And what you'll find is that when things are up, when things are down, our hope must be in the same place. There are people with more money than they know what to do with that have no hope today. So hope isn't found in a financial circumstance. There are people today that have been married for decades that have no hope today. Hope isn't found in a marital status or a relationship. There are people who have been praying for decades to have children and just can't, and other people who have kids every time they turn around. And hope isn't found in your family status or your family size. It isn't found in your status, your job title, what you do for a living. Hope is not found in any of those things. Today we're going to take a look at this passage and see that the children of Israel were at their lowest point that they could possibly be. Yet Jeremiah says, we haven't given up though. Because I remember God's faithfulness. I thought about God and how good he's been and I have hope. As we take a look at that word hope, hope doesn't mean a wish. Hope doesn't mean something I, I want to happen, like I hope there's no traffic on my commute this week, or uh, I hope uh, you know, I have enough money to, to cover this or that, or I hope I get something good for lunch today. When we talk about hope, we're talking about a confident expectation in God based on His character and the promises of His Word. Hope is synonymous with the word faith that we find in the Bible. I'm looking forward to, and I know it's going to come to pass because of who God is. I have hope. I have the hope of eternal life today. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I take my last breath here on planet Earth, I will be in heaven. That's a hope that I have that I hang on to every single day of the world. I don't wonder what comes next. I don't, I don't wring my hands and wonder what's going to happen when I die. I know what's going to happen when I die because of what the Bible says. And so my hope is in the Lord for this life and the next So sometimes when I'm sharing my faith with people and I begin to talk to them about the gospel, the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, it sometimes gets around to the question. Sometimes people just wanna argue and sometimes people are really searching and so I try to answer these questions the best that I can. The question comes of if God is so good, if God is so loving, why is there so much suffering in the world today? You take the children of Israel, can you imagine putting your kids to bed in a Babylonian slave camp, and your kid's saying, I I thought we were God's people. I, I thought, I know you guys haven't been living it, but I remember you saying that God was good. Hey, do you guys remember those stories that you told us about our people, our ancestors being led out of Egypt into slavery? Why would God do that just to bring us back into slavery again? But you see that Suffering and difficulty are just part of the human experience, just part about being alive. Suffering and difficulty just go with life. You can't get around it. Does God have a purpose in suffering? Every single solitary time. But since the fall of man, no one is exempt from suffering, nobody. You're just going to go through it. And again, I'm thankful when, when churches have upbeat and happy uh, sermon series and stuff like that, but I believe as a pastor, my job is to help prepare you for the days that suffering comes because it's coming. I don't think, I, can you imagine, I want to teach a 12-week series on how to be happy when God blesses your life. You'd be like, I think I'm good with that. Like You could do like maybe two weeks, maybe a week and a half would be okay, but like 12 weeks on how to deal with when God blesses, because when God blesses, we're just good, right? Now, we should steward God's blessings for sure, but when difficulty comes, we kind of scratch our heads and go, wait a minute, like, what's going on here? You see, in the Garden of Eden, God had one rule for Adam and Eve. You can do anything you want, but don't eat of the tree in the center of the garden. You can't do it. The devil comes to Eve and says, you need to eat this tree. She says, we can't. He says, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He says that if we eat of this, we're going to die. The devil says, you're not going to die. From the very beginning of time, the devil has been a liar. Just remember that. Mark it down. And what happened? Eve ate. Adam was there. She convinced Adam to eat. Adam disobeyed God. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived. Her heart got a hold of her. We talked about that last week. But Adam knew full well what he was doing. Adam rebelled against God. Romans chapter 5 says, Now sin and death has passed upon all men, for one has sinned. That was Adam. And so because of Adam's sin, mankind has in our father's nature, sin nature. So if you have a dad, you are a sinner. He said, well, that's everybody. Exactly. Everybody's a sinner. Now, were there be to be someone who was born sinless, they would have to be born without an earthly father with an earthly sin nature. So if we were to have a Savior who could save us from our sins, he would have to be born by a supernatural means that kept him from having an earthly father. You may see where I'm going with this. That's why for us as Bible-believing Christians, the virgin birth of Christ is a non-negotiable Bible doctrine. If you deny the virgin birth of Christ, you are not a Christian. Because if Jesus just had a regular dad like you and I have, Jesus would have been born a sinner like you and I were. If Jesus was a sinner, we need a new savior. But here's the fact of the matter. If you've sinned against God and you have, we all have. You and I now are part of the human suffering experience. You and I, if you've lived for more than a week, you have created suffering in someone's life. If you've ever had the privilege of having children, You've created these beautiful little pagans that cause so much suffering and trouble in your life that by the time they are grown into full-grown adults, you will have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just keeping them alive and out of jail, right? That's part of the human experience. Why is that? Because suffering is just part of it. Even things like pain in childbirth. Did you know that that was part of the curse of man's fall? The book of Genesis tells us that. The Suffering is just because we are all sinners. But the problem is, is that our suffering doesn't end when this life ends. When this life ends, now we must be held accountable for the suffering that we caused in this life. And there's one way that God does that. It's appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment. And the Bible says that, you will all stand before God. We will all stand before God. And we won't be judged based on how good our life was. But what did we do with Jesus? Who's paying for your sin? Are you going to pay for your sin? You can. But if you pay for your sin, you will be banished to hell for all of eternity. That's the only way that you can pay for your sin. And he said, well, that sounds like a terrible deal. And it is. And God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. God is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. So here's what he did. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, But God commendeth, or demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Were you supposed to be punished? Yes. But Jesus was punished in your place. Were you supposed to die? Yes. But Jesus died in your place. Were you supposed to be held accountable for all the suffering that you caused and all the wrong that you've done? Absolutely so, but Jesus was punished in your place so that anyone who believes on Jesus... I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that He is the only way to heaven. I believe that He rose again the third day from the grave, and I'm asking Him to save me and forgive me of my sin. Anyone on planet Earth that believes that and confesses that can be forgiven and can be, here's a great Bible word for you, saved. And friend, you can't go to heaven without being saved. You can't go to heaven without Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, I am the only way to heaven. If you're trying to find it a different way, you're never going to find it. That's why sometimes people say, well, Christians are so so self-righteous. First of all, my righteousness is not in me. It's in Jesus Christ. I am a wicked, wretched, deplorable sinner. That's a fact. Any righteousness that I have is not self-righteousness. It's righteousness given to me by Christ himself. Well, Christians think that they're the only ones that are right. No, we don't. We think that the Bible is the only book that's right. And anybody that follows the Bible is right. Anybody who doesn't follow the Bible is wrong. It has nothing to do with what I believe or you believe. Frankly, I I really don't care what you believe. Frankly, nobody cares what I believe. What does God say? That's the bottom line. Because here's the thing. If the Bible's not true... If there is no God, then what is suffering? Suffering is just the miserable existence of life. If there is no purpose in anything that we see or do, why bother? If life is all just what you see, what's the point in this? You keep going to a job every single day that you hate? To buy stuff that doesn't fulfill you? To live a life that is empty? To what? Just die one day? Who wants to do that? Then we find ourselves living in a society with no hope. And people are like, why bother? Suicide rates among certain demographics have skyrocketed over the last two years. In certain demographics, overall, suicides have gone down. But suicides in certain key demographics have skyrocketed. Why? Because people realize... What? I'm supposed to stay home, not talk to anybody, not see anybody, until what? Until I get sick and die anyways? Why bother? If this is all we have to live for, this is kind of a sick joke, isn't it? But what if in your difficulty there was a reason why you're going through a difficult spot? What if the adversity that you're facing is actually beneficial to you? What if there's a reason behind all of this? Then, we can have hope, despite our circumstances. Solomon, who is the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 13, he says this, Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? The day of prosperity be joyful, but the day of adversity consider. God hath also set one over the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Here's what he says. All things I've seen in my days of vanity, there is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man that prolongeth his life in wickedness. (laughs) Solomon's kind of scratching his head. He goes, "I'm, I'm really confused by this, because you have a good man who does good things, who loves God, and he dies. But you have a wicked, vile, filthy man that lives forever. In his sin. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless, here's what he says, God has set one over the other. Hmm. You know what that means? God's got this all planned out. God's already thought this one through. That while you and I might not know what this week is, has in store for us, I don't know what's going to happen six months from now. God's already got it all figured out. He's already pre-planned. He's already pre-ordained how things will unfold because we we know that God is sovereign. The suffering and difficulty that we face in life are a result of God's judgment on sin. Please understand this. God hates sin. God hates sin. If anyone ever tries to tell you otherwise, please understand, they are deceiving you. he said. well, nobody would ever say that God loves sin, right? No. But we, here's the thing, we latch onto sometimes these ideas that are unbiblical ideas because they make us feel good. God loves you just the way that you are. God knows all of your failings. God knows all your shortcomings. God even made you that way, and he chooses to and you're fine. You don't need to change. You're okay just where you are, just the way that you are. God just loves everybody. God doesn't expect you to change. That's a lie. All that lie. Does God love you? Yes. Does God love you unconditionally? Yes. Does God love you despite of your behavior? Yes. Is God pleased with your sin? Absolutely not. Your sin makes God want to vomit. God is greatly discouraged and hurt by your sin. God, if you're a child of his, will not allow you to sin without consequences, guaranteed. And just remember this, sin is the one thing and the one thing only that caused him to execute his only son. That's a big deal. So again, this idea that we can just continue to live in our sin or God forbid celebrate our sin. Can you imagine? Next Sunday is Adultery Sunday here at Who We Call. If you've ever been unfaithful to your spouse, we're going to recognize you with a special gift. We're going to wave the adultery flag out front of the church tomorrow, next Sunday morning. If you've got a friend who's been hurt by adultery, invite them. We want to celebrate them and the sin that they've been involved in. you would be like, "Ah, did you just say sin? Like, why... That doesn't doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, I know, right? Why would we choose to celebrate that which God condemns? We cannot. We can't do it. Because God hates sin. And suffering. Suffering is a result of sin. Again, every adulterous relationship has ended some way with someone suffering. Every time. Every lie that's told ends in suffering. So, well, not necessarily all the time. I don't buy it because the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse number 15, lust when it's conceived brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished brings forth what? Death. Destruction every single time. You can't get around the fact that sin is corrosive, it's destructive. And so suffering is just a result of God's judgment of sin. First of all, God punishes the sin of the unsaved. If you are not a child of God, if you've never been saved or born again, please understand this. If you get nothing else from today's message, get this. You are 100% responsible and on the hook for all of your sin, every single bit of it. In heaven right now, God has a record of every wrong thing you've ever done in your entire life, and he continues to keep record. And when you die, you will be 100% completely responsible for your sin, and you will be punished for it because we're held accountable for our sin. Now, for those of us that have been unsaved, Jesus was punished on our behalf. But for the unsaved, anytime they step out of line or do wrong, they'll be punished. And you might say, well, I know a guy who's not saved. He's not a Christian. He just continues to sin and sin and sin. And he does. nothing bad happens to him. If anything, his life is actually better. He's richer. He has more status. He's more popular. He has a bigger platform as a result of his sin. Huh. Story's not over yet. And here's the, the best part and worst part about it. The day that that man stands before God and is punished, we won't be there to see it. And I say that's a really good thing because you wouldn't want to see God's punishment for sin. But God punishes the sin of the unsaved. Romans chapter 1, verse number 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So if you want to continue to sin against God, if you're not a child of God, please know at some point you're going to be held responsible for that. And it's not going to be pretty when you're called to account for that. But the second type of judgment that God has on sin is God chastises Those that are his children, those that are saved, in an effort to bring them back to obedience. Now chastisement is loving discipline. It's correction. It's like, hey, you've done this wrong and I want to make sure that you don't forget this lesson that you're going to learn, so I'm going to bring you back to a right relationship. That's what God wants to do. Chastisement is, the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, speaks at great length of chastisement. Chastisement is a, a spanking that's given by a father to his child so that they can be corrected. Now, there's two different types of, of things that we see here in, the, in this idea of God's judgment of sin. First is punishment, and then we see chastisement. If you're a child of God, you'll be chastised, but you'll never be punished. You say, well, don't do they kind of feel like the same thing? Maybe, but they have different... End goals. Think about it this way. The criminal justice system in America is one of punishment, not of reform. As much as people want to say, oh, criminal reform, prison reform, all this, we don't reform criminals in America. We just don't do that. We put them in prison, they pay the penalty that's due to them, and then they're let out after, quote, paying their debt to society, whatever that means. Look, when a judge gives a guy two years for armed robbery, The goal of the criminal justice system is not to give him two years so that he'll go and he'll have some time to think about what he's done wrong. He'll be able to finish his GED and take some college classes and get some seminars on entrepreneurship and get out and start his own business and be a productive member of society. That's a great idea, but that doesn't really happen. You talk to anybody that works in the criminal justice system, they find that 80 to 90% of them are repeat offenders. It's a lifestyle for them. It's a revolving door of the same people again and again and again. So we punish criminals. You'll you'll pay the price for what you've done wrong. I I saw my wife share with me, uh, something she read online this past week. There was a guy in Waikiki uh, that got arrested for shoplifting who had 161 prior convictions. 161. So guess what? He's got his mug shot on the, the, the news again. He's going to court. And guess what? Are we reforming this guy? No, we're just punishing. Now, is that necessary? For sure. We don't want anybody to just get off scot-free. We want, hey, you do the crime, you do the time. That's punishment. What you do with your two years while you're incarcerated, we don't care. We'll give you library books if you want to, but we'll also give you a deck of cards. You want to play cards? We don't care. You want to watch TV? We don't care. You want to sit in your cell and make, mark off tick marks? We really don't care. Do your time, and then you can get out. That's punishment. And and understand this as parents. When you send your kid to the room for an hour, that's punishment. I want you to think about what you've done. I usually went and took a nap when my parents told me that, right? Just fell asleep, right? You don't get dinner tonight. I want you to think about what you've done when your stomach rumbles. That's punishment. That's not chastisement. Chastisement has a different... Uh, reasoning behind it. Hey, son, I want you to understand what you've done wrong by lying to me and your mother is a sin before God. And we cannot continue to sin and get away with it. And I know that you're 13 now, but one of these days when you're 23 and you lie, there's going to be greater consequences than just the spanking you're getting ready to get. But I want this spanking to be a reminder for you that sin doesn't go without consequences. I don't take any joy in this. I'm not spanking you because I'm angry. I'm spanking you because I love you. And I want you to grow up to be a productive Christian and a productive member of society. And so I'm going to give you this spanking when I'm done. You can cry a little bit if you want to, but I'm going to give you a hug. We're going to pray together. And we're going to go back and watch a TV show together as a family. Okay? That sound good to you. Do you have any questions about that? Okay. Go ahead and bend over while Daddy takes his belt off, right? How many of you say I was totally disciplined like that as a kid? Three people. God bless all three of you. You made it, right? (laughs) I'm not asking you to show your hands because, but some of us were disciplined through anger, through frustration. That's the last straw. You've done it now. You've ruined my night. I'm going to ruin yours. And it was punishment, retribution, as opposed to loving, gentle correction. Hey, I don't want to see you blow your life up, so I'm going to give you the tools you need to make it. That's loving correction. God does that for his children. And so God, whenever you get out of line, know this, God will not let you continue to sin and get away with it. He's going to bring you back to him, and he's going to make it, get this, painful until you do. You say, God would do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Children of Israel, they were still his kids. They were still his chosen people. They found themselves in a captivity, and like I said, many of them would die there. They'd never see Jerusalem ever again. Why? Because God was saying, come back to me, come back to me, and they wouldn't. And so God cranks up the heat on chastisement until he gets his end result, which is obedience. And you might look at that and go, well, God's just a jerk for doing that. No, God's a loving Father that doesn't want you to blow your entire life up. God's chastisement is a built-in safety mechanism to keep you from going off the rails. It's a benefit. It's a good thing. It's God's guardrails. And so when God chastises, the Bible says, despise not the chastening of the Lord. It's not a bad thing. Because whom the Lord loves, them he chastens. But if any of you don't endure chastening, it's probably because you're not actually a child of God. Because those who endure not chastening, the Bible says, are bastards, fatherless children. It's a strong word even in biblical terms. A bastard, fatherless children. Because here's the fact of the matter. Look, I go to the grocery store, some kid is, is acting out and raking stuff off shelves and kicking and fighting and stuff like that. I look, I'm frustrated by it, but I turn back around because in three minutes, I don't have to hear that kid ever again. I don't care. Your kid, your problem. Right? My kid does that. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that here. Oh, we don't act this way. No, sir. No, ma'am. We're going to fix this. You know why? Because it's my kids. I've never in my entire life, not one single time ever, I don't think I ever will, spank someone else's kids. You know why? Not my kids, not my problem. But I'll tell you with certainty. I remember when I when I was still in the in the navy, we were at the the uh, commissary over here at Mauna Lua. and Thatcher was probably five years old. He was acting up. He was mad and been out of shape. He was kicking stuff. He was fighting. We told him to settle down. He would mouth off and smart off. I was like all right, dude, we're done. No lie. We left an entire cart full of groceries in, in the middle of the commissary so we could take that kid home and wear him out. And he did. We went home, he got a spanking. and We left all of our groceries there. Why? Because that, we're not going to act like that in public. Because you act like that when you're five, you're going to act like a major knucklehead when you're 25. And we're going to put a stop to this ASAP. Oh, you did that because you were mad. No, I did that because I love my son. See the difference there? God doesn't punish His children, he chastises. There's a difference. Not just paying consequences. God wants you to get back into a right relationship with him. And so many times suffering comes in our life because God is trying to get our attention. Every single solitary time I've gone through a period of suffering and difficulty in my life, the first question I always ask, God, is this chastening? Because if it is, I'm sorry and I want to make it right. I don't know if you're trying to get my attention, but you got it. Examine my heart, examine my life. there's something that's not right, I want to make it right as rain immediately because I can't continue to live like this because I know if God loves me, and he does, he's going to chasten me when I step out of line. But at the end of the day, whether it's God's punishment, whether it's God's chastisement, all sin has destructive consequences for both the saved and the unsaved. All sin. hey, look, I am hurt by the sins of other people that I don't even know. Think about that for a second. Every time some pastor or somebody who claims to be a Christian gets involved in sexual immorality or some type of financial scandal in their church or something sideways or inappropriate or, or ungodly, the name of Christ and the name of Christians immediately becomes suspect. And guess What? I suffer, you suffer, and real legitimate Christians who are trying to do the right things suffer as a result of other people's sin, right? Why? Because sin is just destructive, it hurts everybody. Some of you, your parents, got divorced. You know who pays the price for that? Your kids do. You do wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything. wasn't your sin. Sin always has consequences. The Bible even speaks about the fact that sometimes sin has generational consequences. Now, I'm not one of those weirdos like, we need to break generational curses and we're going to break generational sin. No, I'm going to talk about that. And that's not what the Bible talks about either. But when you have somebody who struggles with sin that doesn't make it right, they raise sinners who don't make sin right. They make sinners that don't make things right. Somebody at some point has to break the cycle. I'm thankful for two parents who were raised by alcoholic, abusive fathers. My parents decided we're going to break the cycle. We don't know a lot about the Bible. We don't know a lot about godly Christian parenting, but we're going to take our boys to church every single time the doors are open and just kind of do what they tell us to do. I'm thankful that parents that didn't know a lot decided to break a cycle of sinfulness. But please understand this. My children today pay the price of having alcoholic, abusive, great-grandparents that they never even met. Why? Because sin destroys everything that it touches. So mark this down. Please understand, when people say things like, well, my sin just affects me. That's a lie. Your sin always affects people around you. Well, nobody's ever going to know the truth about my sin. That's also a lie. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you. out." There's no such thing as secret sin. And if you think that you got away with it, please know that God knows. And just understand that God is not above exposing your sin either. (laughs) It's amazing to me. How far technology has come, the fact that you can, you want to know who your ancestors were, and you spit in a tube, and you send it off to the internet. It comes back, and you come to find out, like, I got a half-brother out there somewhere? Like, uh, I didn't know anything about that. And guess what? Now people's sin gets exposed. <laughs> a man who used to attend church here doesn't attend church here any longer, had a last name that was in- incredibly German. Spitting a tube, sending it off to the internet, expecting to come back and tell him he was fully germinal, and to find out there was 0% German blood in his system. None. He went back to his dad, and dad, what happened? Come to find out his grandmother had had an affair and had his father. It was a big family secret, but guess what? Now, because of the internet, everything gets exposed. We've had family members who, five, 10 years after they passed away, their sin was exposed. You can't cover up sin. You can't run from sin. The only thing in the world that you can do right to fix your sin is repent. And here's the thing. Does God hate sin with every fiber of his being? Does God pour out his wrath against sin every day? Does God chastise those that step out of line for sure? But please understand, God's wrath and hatred of sin is always completely and totally balanced by his love, his grace, his mercy, and his willingness to forgive you at the drop of a hat. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, one of the greatest verses in all the New Testament. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, your, su- your sin causes suffering, and you just need to unload it. Suffering and difficulty are a desire for God's sanctification of his children, though. God wants you and I to be more like Jesus. That's why he gives us trials. I don't know about you, but every time trials come to my life, the first question I have is always, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? What's really going on? And the answer in the life of a Christian is always the same, because God wants to make you better, and God wants to get glory. You see, trials are given to us for the glory of God and for our personal good. It's interesting. The, uh, our need to blame someone is not unique to our society or our culture. The disciples were walking with Jesus. They found a, a man who was blind from his birth, John chapter 9. The disciple says, Hey, Jesus why is this guy blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither. Neither did this man or his parents' sin. Now, he wasn't saying that they were sinless or perfect. He was saying that this sin didn't cause this kid to be blind. But that the works of God would be manifest in him. Whoo! how about that? Nobody did anything wrong. God just wants glory. How about that okay hey god i don't know why this trial has come my way you didn't do anything wrong god just wants glory now again you might have done something wrong god might be chastising you again i would get that one out of the way first hey god if you're trying to get my attention you got it 100 if i've done anything wrong i confess it and forsake it and repent of it every known sin that i have i place under the blood of the cross of jesus christ and walk away from it for sure but God might say, no, that's not it. I just want glory from this. It'll be a year next month. Our daughter, Makili had gone to the hospital was hospitalized for four weeks. On a Sunday, February 21st, it was the day. It was a Sunday Sunday morning. She, she almost died. Uh, she had gone into septic shock, and her organs were shutting down, and they didn't know, have a clue as to what was wrong with her. And we just prayed. And again, first thing I think to myself, God, if, if you're trying to get my attention, you got it. God, if i have done anything wrong, I repent of it. God, if, if there's any sin in my life or the life of my family that, that I've turned a blind eye to, I want you to expose it. But God, I don't know that that's the case. And so, God, I'm just asking that you would get yourself glory through this. It wasn't a matter of like, why me? Why this? Why now? It was a matter of like, okay, God, I just want you to be glorified through this. And so over the next several weeks, people from our church made cards and balloons and sent flowers. And her room was full Every single place that you could put a card or a poster or a sign or something like that, every single bit of it was full. And every time the nurses would come in, they'd go, wow, I've never seen so much stuff in one room before. And we'd say, oh, this is all for my church family. Hmm, got it. And then as we began to talk to nurses, we found out that some of them were Christians too. And we just happened to have a stack of invitations to who we call it Baptist Church. Hey, come check us out if you get a chance. And we began to talk to people and... And, you know, the the doctors would come in. They'd say, hey, do you guys have any questions? We'd say, no, not really. We kind of understand. There were times we had lots of questions. We would ask questions. They were always very gracious to answer. But a couple times we said, hey, you guys seem pretty pretty chill about this. Yeah, we're just trusting God. Like, you guys do what you do because you're the experts. And we're going to do what we do. And let's just pray and trust God. And everything's going to work out. Well, everything's going to work out like your daughter's going to get better. No, everything's going to work out according to God's plan. Whether it goes right in my eyes or wrong in my eyes doesn't amount to a hill of beans. God's in charge. God is sovereign. God just wants glory from this situation. And when we saw improvement, we praised God for it. When doctors figured stuff out, we praised God for it. Why? Because we'd prayed that God would give them wisdom. And as my daughter, who's considerably better, not 100% out of the woods yet, is here in church this morning, we praise God for that. But I never forgot God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And you see, as as Jeremiah writes Lamentations 3, he goes through all these terrible things that they've experienced where God has placed them in jail and given them a heavy chain. One verse in there, he's broken my teeth with gravel. Goodness, that sounds painful. But I remember your faithfulness. I remember that your mercies are new every single morning. And God says, I just want to be glorified through this. But you know, the problem with hope, the ability to be encouraged and trust God and know that he's in charge and the the ability to just continue to plug away day by day trusting God through things, it's very difficult for you and I because we're prone to make decisions based on what we see. We look, and whatever we see is what's reality to us. I remember the uh, beginning of 2020 is probably March time frame or so. You know, we were at, uh, my wife and I were at Sam's Club. That's where we go on, on, on dates, uh, Costco, Sam's Club, you know. For those that are actually like grown ups and have been married for a long time, you realize like Costco and Sam's Club is like a legitimate date, you know. And so it's a, it's, a, it's good stuff. So we were in... A, in Sam's Club, um, and again, this was probably March 2020, or no, it was probably, it was probably uh, April, May time frame 2020. We've been, you know, we've been shut down for 14 days to flatten the curve for two months, uh, if you remember those days. And so we're, we found ourselves in Sam's Club, and we're kind of shopping, pushing our cart and stuff like that. And some guy wheels out to the middle of the aisle a pallet of toilet paper and drops it, and people went nuts, like Black Friday nuts, right? And people start running. You hear people over the freezer section, take our toilet paper. They start running. They start grabbing cases. And the workers are there holding people off, going one case per customer, one case per customer. And so then they got like three people from a household, each grabbing one. They're like, no, one per household. You said one per customer. And they're fighting over toilet paper. And my wife looks at me and she goes, shall we get toilet paper? And I said, are we out? And she was like, no, then we don't get toilet paper. And she was like, are you sure? (laughs) And so then I began to second guess myself. I "I don't know. (laughs) What happened? Like, honestly, 30 seconds before, toilet paper furthest this thing from my mind. But I see people in a panic and a frenzy over toilet paper. And then the workers, and no lie, within three minutes, that pallet was decimated. And they go, we'll have more next week. And people are like, oh, next week. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, did we miss out on toilet paper? Maybe we should have gotten some. I what was the difference? I was affected by what I saw. Everybody else is panicking, but maybe they know something that I don't. Like, maybe they're panicking for a good reason. I just don't know why they're panicking, so I should panic too, you know? And we're just like, oh, man. And then you're like, the one who's not panicking, is like, toilet paper. And everyone's like, you're not worried about toilet paper. You're like, I wasn't, but now I kind of am. Like, should I be worried? I don't know. Why? Because we're prone to, to worry, and we're prone to act based on the things that we see. But here's how God works. God says, I'm working in all the things that you don't see. So you see what's going on at work. You see what's happening in your bank account. You see what's happening uh, with the society. You see what's happening on your street, in your community, with the people that you work with. You see all that, but you don't see what God's doing. And so you and I make decisions on whether or not we'll have hope based on what we see. We determine whether or not God's good based on what we see no lie, I know people who go to Facebook every single day to look and see what the case count is for the state of Hawaii to determine whether or not we're going to make it through this or not. Oh, did you see? We were at 6,000 cases the other day. Record cases. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'm sure it's not good. (laughs) Okay. Like I don't know if we'll ever make it out of this. (laughs) I'll let you know we're going to make it out, I promise. Guaranteed. Did you know this? You might not know this about the Bible, so I'm going to help you with this. Did you know that the children of Israel are no longer in captivity in Babylon? Did you know that? They made it. They got out. You say, well, wasn't that written thousands of years ago? Yeah, it was, but they didn't stay there forever. <laughs> and we won't stay here forever either. But you know, you and I determine whether or not we're gonna have hope based on what we see. Let me turn on the news today and find out whether or not I'm gonna have hope. Hey, look, just skip the news and decide to have hope. Oh, I'm gonna look at my social media feed and see how everybody else is reacting and make my determination. No, no, no. How about you read your Bible and determine whether or not you're gonna have hope for today? And skip all the other garbage that steals your hope. But you see, we're also, many of us sometimes get jaded because we make decisions based on what we've experienced before. Oh, yeah, I've seen this before. I know how this works. And we begin to make decisions based on what we've experienced. So what I've seen, what i experienced. Maybe you've been burned before. Oh, I'll never be burned again. You're not going to live a very productive life. I know people who don't like to make connections at church because they've been burned by church before. Right? Let me just tell you this. If you've never been burned by people at church you haven't been in church long enough because you'll get burned, guaranteed. But you know what? It's part of life. And hopefully when you get burned, you'll be able to walk through it with grace, forgiveness, kindness, mercy. Hopefully on the other side, there'll be some repentance. Hopefully if you're the burner instead of the burn you'll walk in repentance and seek forgiveness and righteousness and holiness because we're just sinners, man. But sometimes people say, oh, I'm not going to get too close because I've been burned before. I'm not going to have a lot of faith or hope because I've been burned before. Oh, I don't walk through life with rose-colored glasses. I see things for what they are because I've been around. I've seen some stuff. You're probably just jaded and really scarred. And that's not a good thing. Look, in the eight years that I've been the pastor here at Huey College since we started, I have been hurt so many times by people who have said things untrue about our family, who have been unkind, who have said things about my children, said things about my wife, told lies about me that just weren't true. People that I poured my life into that left without even saying goodbye and then went and talked trash to me to somebody else. Do they tell you about the time we helped them pay their rent? Did they tell you about that time that we took six bags of groceries over to their house? Did they tell you about that time that I helped pay their kids tuition? Yeah, they didn't tell you any of that, did they? And just so hurtful. So what do I say? I'll never help anybody again. I'll never give groceries to anybody again. I'll never pray for anybody again because they're just going to burn me. No, I have hope. I don't have hope in this person and how good they are. I don't have hope in anybody else. I have hope in the Lord. And just know this, when I took you a bag of groceries, I didn't take it for you, I took it for the Lord, in the name of the Lord, and he was pleased by it, and if you don't appreciate it, I don't care, I didn't do it for you. When I prayed for you, when I prayed for your marriage when you didn't, I didn't do it for you, I did it for the Lord. And I can continue to do that because my hope is not in you or your ability to make me feel good about myself, my hope is in the Lord. And again, if you've walked through some stuff, if you've been burned a few times, you might actually feel like having a hard shell is a badge of honor. Let me just tell you, it, it keeps you from making real meaningful relationships with people. And, and again, a church is not perfect, but a church is full of people who love Jesus, who want to love one another, and want to be better. And so if, if you've been burned, you're in a good place for that, to grow But you can't stay there. And you can't determine whether or not you're going to have hope based on what your past experiences are. Children of Israel, like, of everything that God promised them to Abraham, again, he promised a land, seed, and a blessing. They had none of that in Babylon. None of it. Where's the land? Oh, yeah, we were taken from it. Where's the seed? You got a bunch of slaves now. We're supposed to be a great nation. We're a nation of slaves. Where is this blessing that you speak of? We ain't got it. And so the children of Israel could have been greatly despair, but Jeremiah's like, hold up, guys. Remember how good God's been. Remember how faithful God has been. We can't continue to live based on what we've experienced. As Christians, we have to view the world from the perspective of God's word. We've got to look through things through the lens of the Bible. I can't look based on what I've experienced and determine whether or not I'm going to have hope. I can't look at what I see and determine whether or not I'm going to have hope. I just got to do what the Bible says. <laughs> and a man a few weeks ago came to me, and she's like, Pastor, me and my wife are struggling, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she, she keeps hurting me, and she keeps saying she's sorry. And, like, I, I forgive her. But, I mean, like, really, like, how many times do I have to forgive her? <laughs> and I laughed. And he goes, that's not funny. Is this a setup? Because he's like, what are you talking about? No, like, how many times do I have to forgive my wife? I go, I don't know. Do you think seven's a good number? And he was just like, oh. no, I'm trying to have a real conversation with you. I am too. You think seven's a lot? Maybe seven times seventy is a better number. And he was like, I don't like the way that you're making fun of this situation. I just quoted a Bible verse. I'm not making fun of anything, man. And here's what happened. He had to view his marriage through the lens of the Bible. The Bible has to be to determine whether or not you get to have hope today or not. Not based on the quality of your marriage, based on the promises of God's word. I really, read a really good quote this past week. It says that viewing life through the lens of the Bible sometimes is like putting on a new pair of glasses. Have you ever tried out a new prescription before? You're like, oh, it kind of, feels kind of funny for the first couple of days, and then you adapt to it, and your body understands it. When you begin looking at the the life through the lens of the Bible, it might take you a little bit of an adjustment period like, whoa, I've never had to do this before. I've never had to walk this way before. Congratulations. Welcome to the Christian life. This is how it's done. You say, well, this is the opposite of everything I've known. I know. That's why the Bible says you can't stay where you were. You have to come to where Jesus is. And you do that by walking in sanctification and holiness. A few final thoughts about your trials. Remember that God's always greater than your trials. I know it feels insurmountable sometimes. I know you feel like you'll never make it past it, but I promise you, you will. That's why I think it's really important next week we talk about depression and suicide in the life of a Christian. Because many Christians sometimes feel like, well, yeah, I know God could, but he won't. I know God probably could bring you through this, but he's not going to. I know there's probably a solution out there for other, other people, but not for me. And people just completely and totally lose hope, but they forget That God is a God of overcoming. God is a God of victory. That God is greater than the trials that we face. Psalm 34, verse number one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Through this, it's important to understand that God is sovereign through your trials. God had a reason for taking the children of Israel into captivity in Babylon. He had a reason behind it. And God was fleshing out his purpose in their life. And it was very uncomfortable. It was very painful for them. But Jeremiah is like, guys, please just remember how faithful God has been. Psalm 55, verse number 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain. thee; He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. God's faithful. Remember, God's preordained your suffering. He's also preordained your deliverance. God doesn't do anything by accident. We can take a look through the book of James on uh, Sunday nights, and we talked a few weeks ago on on Sunday nights about uh, open open theism, has the idea that God is still trying to figure everything out and wrap his arms around everything. And it's like, oh man, Anthony stepped out in front of a bush. I told totally he didn't see that coming. What will I do for his family now? Hmm, let me think about that. And that flies in the face of everything that the Bible tells us about who God is. God knows the, the, the end from the beginning. God has preordained everything in our life. So if you're walking through a trial, just know this, God's already set you up to walk through the trial. Fact. But at the same time, if God has preordained your suffering, God has also preordained your deliverance as well. God has a way to sustain you, and he's got the exit prepared for you. Just continue to walk in faithfulness to him. I love Psalm 18, verse number 18 through 20. You need to, man, make note of these. Psalm 18, 18 through 20. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. I love that phrase that the psalmist used. He brought me forth into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Can can you imagine God in heaven? So they're going like, (laughs) ha ha, Anthony, that's my boy right there. Got it. I can't fathom that. But it says that the Lord saw my righteousness and he delighted in me and delivered me. That God is literally smiling from heaven going, you're doing exactly what I told you to do. Hang in there, bud. Keep it up. You got this. That's the heart of a loving father. Not some God that's waiting up in heaven to whack you over the head with a stick. Not some God who's dragging your face through the gravel, breaking your teeth because he enjoys abuse. But it's a father who loves you, who's like, son, you can't live this way because you're gonna wreck your entire life. Come back to a right place with me. It's important that we always remember that God is faithful. Again, we take a look at Lamentations chapter three this morning? Verse 21, this will recall to my mind, therefore I have hope, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. That's song we sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness, Huh? where'd they come from? Lamentations chapter 3, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow, or turning with thee, thou changest not, thou compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Where did he get that? Because he saw the children of Israel taken into slavery. And Jeremiah said, God's still faithful. Worst time of my life, Jeremiah could say, but God's still faithful. When I remember how good God is, I just remember that every single day I wake up and God's mercy is right there every single morning. And every single day is an opportunity to wake up, praise God, live for God, and remember his faithfulness, because God is faithful. But the final thing I want you to get this morning, get this, hope is a choice, Next week, we're going to talk about depression. Sometimes depression is a physiological thing. Sometimes it's an emotional thing. Sometimes it's a spiritual thing. Sometimes, I'm going to say this because it's true, sometimes depression is a choice. I'm not saying that for everyone. It's not a blanket statement. I'm saying sometimes it is. Sometimes we choose. I'm saying we to include myself. We find our identity by being down in the dumps, by nothing ever working out our way, We become comfortable with pain. We become comfortable with failure. And we set up shop and we identify with our failures. And that's a choice sometimes. But hope, hope is always a choice. That's always on the table. Depression is someone who has no hope, who's lost hope, who's living a life of hopelessness. And regardless of what the cause of your depression is, you can always choose to hope. Anybody can do that. I choose to trust God today. I choose to fill my brain not full of the things that I see or the things that I've experienced in my past, but based on who God is. Man, you want to encourage yourself, spend time in God's word every single morning when you wake up. Spend time in prayer every single morning when you wake up. Fill your day full of good, solid, Christian worship music that draws your heart towards the heart of God. Think about what we sang this morning. I, I was, I don't even know if you heard me, but I was in the back like belting it out. I got a little no voice left because I was screaming it this morning. We had, Rejoice now, O my soul, for your love is my reward. What is it? Uh, Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And we did need to repeat it once. We repeated it three times, and I loved it every time. By the time we to the end, I was like belting it out. Fear is gone and hope is sure because Christ is mine forevermore. I don't give a rip what my bank account says. I don't care what people are talking trash about me at work. I don't care what tomorrow holds or 10 years from now holds. Here's what I know. A hundred years from now, I'm going to be gathered together with every single believer throughout all of human history in the throne room of Jesus Christ singing praise and glory to Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, because Christ is mine forevermore. So whatever is going on this week, I'm not sweating that. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest Drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all-in-all, all, here in the power of Christ I stand. And fill your heart full of that kind of stuff this week. And I dare you to not have hope. But it's a choice. You gotta make it. So, this week, I don't know what your circumstances is, and I say this with all love because I really want to know and I really love you. And what's going on in your life. And again, this is your first time here, Hueycala. I love you, your family, just by being here today. And so I really care what's going on with you. And I want to know, and I want to pray for you. But frankly, at the end of the day, you should have hope. And I really don't care what's going on in your life because you should choose hope. It's a choice. You got it. Hey, look, if if Jeremiah in this situation can have hope, I think any of us can have hope. And he said, well, you don't know what's going on in my workplace today. I don't know, but I know that you're blessed. I've skimmed some news headlines this week. Can you be imagine being a defenseless Ukrainian who lives on the border with Russia this week? You say, what does that mean? <laughs> you don't understand. These people are under threat of being steamrolled by a country who has a history throughout all of human history and world civilization of steamrolling small countries. And the... and. <laughs> America basically says, well, we we'll, we'll, might turn a blind eye to it if it's a little skirmish here or there. What? These people don't have any hope, any security, and what's your problem? Somebody said something negative about you this week? Come on, let's get a grip. You're blessed. Remember God's faithfulness. Whatever you're going through, just know he's always, already brought you through bigger than this. Guaranteed. And he's been faithful. You can trust him this week. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you literally have no hope. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that I want to give you hope. But the only hope that I can give you is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if today you would repent of your sin and confess it before God and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you'll have more hope than you know what to do with for this life and the next. But for those of us that are Christians, (laughs) this nonsense, sky is falling, chicken little, fearful, hopeless nonsense is not for Christians that's not us. That's not who we are in Christ. We are bold. If anybody has a reason for hope, it is us. So much that Peter says this, if anybody questions why you have the hope in you, you need to have a really good answer because they're going to notice that you got that hope. So let's live like that this week, a people who have hope despite our circumstances.